For four years, from 1984 to 1988, I was a seminary student in Dallas, Texas, which was the richest city um, I had ever lived in. And a few times during uh, my time there, I heard about a new school of thought coming out of Central America called Liberation Theology, which claimed that God is partial to the poor and that he is rejecting of the rich. In fact, the work of the kingdom is to liberate the poor from the oppression they suffer at the hands of the rich. Some in that movement even went so far as to say that wealth and faith are mutually exclusive, that there's really no such thing as a rich Christian. Now, every time that liberation theology was mentioned at my seminary, it was quickly rejected, maybe because it sounded a little bit like communism to us, but really more importantly, um, it was contrary to what we knew about salvation. I mean, if the Bible is clear about anything, it is that we are rescued from death and from hell by believing in Jesus, not by renouncing our wealth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever does what? Believes in him. Uh, will not perish, but have eternal life. It, it, it's, it's not anything other than believing in Jesus. So I really didn't give liberation theology a second thought until this past week when I read for the first time words that had been written right during those years that I was in seminary, like this quote from Elsa Thomas, the poor alone are worthy to take part in the kingdom of God. Unless the rich break with their way of life, they cannot enter this kingdom. And this from Pedrito Maynard Reed, there is no hope for any rich persons as long as they are members of that class. I think those quotes made an impression on me because now I know where they got that idea. They got it, at least partly, from the book of James. In, in fact, both of them wrote commentaries on James. Elsa Thomas titled hers, The Scandalous Message of James. And the more I study the book of James, the more I realize that its message really is scandalous. In fact, the more money you have, the more scandalous it is. Let me just uh, read with you some of what James had to say about poverty and wealth. These are the passages that we're going to be focusing in on this morning, and I want you to, to look at them with me, and, and, and let's see if they don't make us squirm. Chapter 1, uh, verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now go down to chapter 2 and, and verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our... Uh, actually, down to verse 5. I'm going to skip right down to verse 5. Listen, because this, this is where it's the most pointed. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And over in chapter 5, James pulls out all the stops. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Down to verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Wow, that's really harsh. Can you see why someone who takes James seriously, I mean someone who actually believes that this is the word of God, might see an inverse correlation between financial wealth and spiritual health? James makes it sound really risky to be rich, doesn't he? Where did he get such a scandalous idea? Well, liberation theologians would say he got it from Jesus, and they're right. Let's go left in our uh, Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We could look at any of the Gospels, but Luke is the one that has most of the teachings of Jesus on money. So I'm just going to show a few of these to you um, from Luke. Chapter 6 is where we'll start. Luke chapter 6. This is the abridged version of the Sermon on the Mount. The longer transcript of it is in Matthew 5 through 7. And you may remember that Jesus began this famous talk with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we don't really struggle with that beatitude uh, because we say it's not talking about financial poverty, but spiritual poverty, right? Isn't that what we say? What Jesus was commending was an attitude of humility. Okay, so why did Luke quote Jesus? He's talking about the same sermon. Why did he quote Jesus as saying in verse 20 of chapter 6, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Why didn't he say poor in spirit? And why did he add in verse 24 what Matthew omitted? But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Could it be that financial wealth is actually a very real threat to spiritual health. Putting Matthew and Luke together, we we would have to conclude that those who are most likely to be poor in spirit are those who are, well, poor. Wealthy people, on the other hand, tend to be too proud to know how much they need Jesus. So it's not wealth per se, but the attitude of arrogance that wealth fertilizes that is perilous. Now, uh, turn over to Luke 14, chapter 14, beginning in uh, verse 26 of Luke 14, Jesus scares off of the bandwagon those who have misconceptions about what it means to follow him. He tells them that they cannot be his disciples 
if they do not hate those they love, that's in verse 26, and if they are not willing to die for him, that's in verse 27. And then in verse 33, he says, look at it, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, literally all of your own possessions, cannot be my disciples. You know what Christians were called back in Jesus' day? Disciples. He's not talking here about what it takes to graduate from basic Christianity to discipleship. No, discipleship is basic Christianity. And Jesus doesn't even mention faith here. Instead, he mentions loyalty and courage and poverty as requirements. Hmm. And then in chapter 16, after uh, Jesus says in verse 13, you cannot serve both God and money, he tells the story of a rich man and a poor man and the reversal of fortunes they both experience when they step off the dot of their earthly life onto the line of eternity. The rich man lived a life of luxury and self-indulgence, the kind of life that James denounces. And he utterly ignored the needs of Lazarus, the beggar, just outside his gate. And then they both died. And Jesus said, without batting an eye, that Lazarus went to heaven and hung out with Abraham. But the rich man went to hell. And verse 23, in Hades, or hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Doesn't that tweak your perspective on poverty and wealth? It's almost as if both are temporary anomalies. And what's upside down now will be turned right side up later. Now, turn over to uh, chapter 18, where a man of enviable status asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus started listing uh, some of the Ten Commandments, and the man interrupted him in verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say impossible, but that's a pretty tight fit, isn't it? 
Actually, in the very next chapter, Luke tells the story of one camel of a man who squeezed through. His name was Zacchaeus. And verse 2 of chapter 19 says that he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He also was not very tall, so he climbed a tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he walked through the crowd. And verse 5 says that when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, I mean, I'd expect Jesus to say, that's not what it takes to get in. It's not what you do with your money. It's faith in me. That's not what he says. He says, today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Doesn't it bug you that Jesus didn't even mention Zacchaeus' faith? Instead, Luke just tells us about his liquidation of his assets, which prompted Jesus to declare him saved. Listen, if passages like these don't rattle you, you are either very poor or you are well stocked with disclaimers. I've heard them all. Actually, I've, I've used them all. Like we say this, we say, I'm not rich, I'm middle class. I don't even know somebody who's ever said they were rich. I know so many people who think they're middle class. The problem is that it doesn't square with the numbers, at least if not if you look at it worldwide. I mean, you can look at all kinds of different websites uh, on this, but. If you make an average U.S. salary, which is about $60,000 a year, that puts you in the top 1% worldwide. So even though we, we definitely don't feel rich these days in this economy, I think that we would have to agree that Jesus and James very likely would use that term to describe many of us. So then we say, well, what about all those passages in the Old Testament that say that wealth is a blessing from the Lord. Did God change his mind? Or we say, it's not money that's evil, but the love of money. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of it as long as you're not arrogant or stingy. And man, we go straight to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We so prefer this passage to the book of James because there the apostle Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's the verse we memorize. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, that's as much the Word of God as what Jesus and James taught. But if we run to passages like this in order to escape the book of James, or worse, to escape the teaching of Jesus, 
We won't linger long enough in those harder teachings to let the Spirit of God get past our defenses and make the kind of heart-level changes that are part of true discipleship. And so what I want to do just for a few minutes this morning is to set aside the loopholes. Don't look for them. Just let James say what God led him to say and trust that good will come from it because it always does whenever we hear and heed uh, the Word of God. So go back to James 1, and let's just reread these passages. Let's look at them a little more, uh, a little more closely than before. If I, were, if I were to put a headline over verses 9 through 11 of James 1, it would be this, wealth is fleeting. James says, uh, verse 9, believers in humble circumstances... That's his way of describing those who are living in poverty. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Now, James is playing with words here, like the word humble in verse 9 and humiliation in verse 10. It's the same root word in both verses. And James is saying that the question is not if you are going to find yourself in humble circumstances. The only question is when. Better to be poor now and rich later than vice versa. And James uses the word pride ironically because he says over in chapter 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So he's saying to those who are rich, you know that pride you have in your wealth It's your downfall. How proud will you be when God exalts the poor and humbles the rich? And he's saying to the poor, just wait. Soon you will see who really has something to be proud of. How soon? Sooner than you think. The rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. They're just still working at getting more and more money and then bam, it's over just like that. It's gone. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I depart. You'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Lose it all immediately. And man, does life go fast. Moses was a guy who lived way longer than most of us will live. And yet toward the end of his life, when he looked back on it, he, he, he just talked about how short life felt. He said um, in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting You are God, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Here's how James says it in chapter 4, verse 14. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
That's why Moses prays to God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We do not have a heart of wisdom until we number our days against eternity when the poor in spirit will hit the jackpot and the rich in spirit will go down in flames. For those who exalt themselves on the dot will be humbled on the line. And those who humble themselves on the dot will be exalted on the line. Of course, all we know is the dot, which is why we are so prone to getting everything backward. For instance, uh, we tend to suck up to the wealthy and look down our noses at the poor. But in the church, James says in chapter 2, favoritism is forbidden. After you've written that down, look again at at verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Today's English version says, you must never treat people in different ways according to their outward appearance. Actually, the book of Leviticus forbids favoring either the rich or the poor. But James focused on the more prevalent problem. Verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I tell you, whenever I read these verses, I remember um, my visit to Old Sturbridge Village, uh, which is a living museum in Massachusetts. If you've ever been there, you know that uh, all around this village there are actors who actually portray people who lived in a typical New England village back in the 1800s. So you could talk to a, uh, a teacher or a shop owner Uh, or a blacksmith, or a farmer, and they could tell you all about what their life was like. So uh, we were there, and I saw down at the edge of the common a white church, a white steepled Baptist meeting house. And I went straight in there because I wanted to talk to the pastor, the person who was portraying a pastor. I had lots of questions about what it was like in churches in the 1800s. For instance, I noticed when I was in there that on the main level of the church, there were no normal seats or pews. There were just these box seats, each with its own little door. And I wondered whether anybody could sit in any box. But what I learned was that they were really more like luxury boxes in a stadium. They were leased to the highest bidders. And, And the closer you sat to the front the more the box cost. And we could look inside the boxes and we would see little coal stoves in there and and pew cushions. And the pastor said, well, that's the people bring them from home and they leave them here because this is their box. And and I, 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 I said, I couldn't help but ask, I said, what about people who can't afford a box? He said, oh, there's no problem. We have a place for them. And he pointed up to the balcony where there were pews without boxes, like bleachers, They could sit up there. And if they can't afford that, because they were also for rent, if they can't afford that, like like, like for instance, he said this, he said like if they were slaves, 
They can stand in the back. And I heard that and I thought, my goodness, how could anyone read James 2 and condone a practice like that? I mean, that's a blind spot. And then I thought, I wonder what blind spots I have. I I wonder what people are going to say about about me, about those that lived in my generation when they look back on how, how we practiced church. What is going to make them shake their heads in disgust? Anything that we do that favors the rich over the poor is sinful. And it's also short-sighted. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, James says in verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now just stop there again because I want to make sure that this sinks in. There's definitely an inverse correlation between financial wealth and spiritual health, typically. Not always, but typically. Those who are materially poor are the ones who are spiritually rich, rich in faith, as James put it, and therefore the wealthiest in the long term because they are the ones who will inherit the eternal riches and comforts and pleasures of the kingdom of God. Now, again, not apart from faith, but poverty tends to produce the poverty in spirit that tends to elicit faith in Jesus. So if anyone is most blessed by God, the poor are. But verse 6, you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are, Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Do not greedy, rich people increase their own wealth at your expense? And verse 7, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Who's he talking about? Who's got that noble name? Jesus does. He says, they're blaspheming Jesus. Why do you think that was happening? Why would a rich person be more likely than a poor person to insult the name of Jesus? Well, they're the ones that are more threatened by his demands. In Luke 16, when Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money, uh, Luke says that the Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this and scoffed at him. When Paul and Silas drove a demon out of a fortune teller in Philippi, rendering her powerless to tell fortunes, her bosses had Paul and Silas thrown in jail. They claimed it was because they were telling people to break the law, but the real reason was because these business owners were taking a financial hit. Then in Ephesus, Paul preached against the worship of a goddess, a false god by the name of Artemis, and those who made and sold silver shrines of Artemis went ballistic. They started throwing Christians in jail, and again, they claimed noble motives Oh, our goddess is being disrespected. But the real problem was that there was a dip in the market for Artemis shrines. Many people have no beef with Jesus until he goes for their wallet. When I was a rookie pastor, uh, there was a guy in our church who was very wealthy. He lived on a sprawling ranch. 
He drove to church in a street-legal monster truck. And he was a brand-new Christian. He, he just was somebody who, he sat like in the second row, and he always leaned forward, and he just had this, this insatiable appetite uh, for the Word of God, for spiritual truth, until the day that I preached on Luke 14, 33, where Jesus said that we have to give up all of our own possessions if we want to be his disciples. Um, I was filling in for the lead pastor at the time. And at the end of my message, this young Christian tore his outline in half and he wrote on the back something that we later found in the offering plate, a little note that said, if there are more sermons like this, we'll only have a handful left when the pastor gets back. Obviously, I had hit a nerve. Well, actually, Jesus did because he said it, not me. And he taught that our mercy toward the poor or our indifference to them is a nitty-gritty test of our commitment to the golden rule that Jesus gave us, which is to do to others as we would have them do to us, or to use other language, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so James says, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For, look at this, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but we should really stop and, and make sure that we soak that up because verse 10 tells us why every single person needs Jesus. The reason why is because none of us is perfect. We may be more moral than other people that we know, but every single one of us has broken some law of God. And James says, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. You're a lawbreaker. You desperately need forgiveness. Uh, you need a Savior. And that's who Jesus was. He died on the cross for those very mistakes that make you a lawbreaker in the eyes of God. But what James is saying here is that treating people differently based on what's in it for us is evil. For, verse 11, he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. It's interesting that James would mention the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expanded the definition of murder. Remember this? He expanded it. Not just from our, it's not just our actions that can be murderous, but so can our attitudes. And the Apostle John said, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And if you track that word down in the Bible, you can, you can see that hate does not always mean deploring others. It may mean ignoring them. So if we're sexually pure, but socially discriminating, pandering to the one, ignoring the other, we are guilty of breaking God's law. James says, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That is a pregnant verse right there. There's so much right there. Uh, for instance, I see that word freedom. Such an important word for us to see because if we feel at all threatened by going, I, you know, God wants to have control of all of my money, 
He wants to tell me what to do with it? That doesn't sound like freedom to me, but James says, oh, yes, it is. You live out the golden rule and its implications for your finances. You will experience freedom. You will experience life at its best. You will experience a life that is blessed by God. And if that's not motivation enough to show mercy to the poor, then focus in on the word judged. You are going to be judged. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, speaking to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And James says in verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Actually, Jesus taught that back in uh, Matthew 25 in that story of the sheep and the goats. He talked about uh, when he returns, uh, what he's going to say to those who do not feed and welcome and clothe and visit the least of his brothers and sisters. He's going to say to them, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. Woe to the unmerciful. Because on the day of judgment, God will be no more merciful toward us than we were toward others. And no less merciful. That's why James can say mercy triumphs over judgment. If we live a life of mercy, especially toward the poor, God's going to go soft on us. Now listen, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us is. What do you want to see in the countenance of Jesus when that day comes? You don't want to see a scowl on his face. You want to see a welcoming smile. And that will happen if we are merciful. See, he'll be merciful to us. He'll say, look, I know you've, you've committed a lot of sins, but I'm going to be merciful toward you because you've been merciful to others. That's what Jesus said. It doesn't mean we're saved by being merciful. It means that we're merciful because we're saved. Because the Spirit of God lives in us and that causes us to treat people uh, differently. Now, um, we've already absorbed the blow of James's denunciation of the rich in chapter 5. So hopefully, reading it a second time will be a little less shocking. Maybe we can, you know, peek through our fingers to see what's at the core of these harsh words in chapter 5. See, it's not that wealth is inherently sinful. It's greed that's deadly. But greed is an epidemic among the rich. And so that's where James takes aim. But the problem is not what they have. The problem is what they do with what they have. Wait for it. Verse 1, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. And now he says there's misery coming on you, and, he's, and then he gives them this flash forward of their stash on the day of judgment. He says, look, verse 2, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. In fact, their corrosion, the, the fact that your precious metals piled up unused behind lock and key 
rather than being shared with those whose basic needs could have been met without affecting your lifestyle in the least, will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's almost as if the lake of fire will be a boiling cauldron of the melted gold and silver of those who will be thrown into it. And now he gets to the crux of the problem. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. It's not the money that you've made that is the issue. It's the money that you have stockpiled. That word translated hoarded was used by Jesus in Luke 12 where he responded to a family squabble about how to divvy up an inheritance. Remember what he said? He said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told a parable about a farmer who was blessed with a bumper crop. He harvested so much grain that he didn't have enough square footage in his barns to store it all. So what did he do? He just built bigger barns. But God said to him, this is Jesus speaking, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then he said, this is how it will be with whoever stores up. There's the same word. This is how it will be with whoever hoards for themselves but is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It means to share with others what you could keep for yourself. Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's how you store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Now notice the timestamp in verse 3. He said, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Ooh, we don't really think like that. We think, ah, I'm living in a time that's going to stretch out so far that I can hardly imagine what comes next. And James says, no, no, these are the last days. Relatively speaking, Jesus is coming very soon, and he will reward generosity, and he will punish greed. So this is no time to take advantage of your employees to enrich yourself. That's what he's talking about in verses 4. Uh, in verse 4, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And there's another big term, the Lord Almighty. Literally, he says, it reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. In Revelation 19, the Apostle John was given a vision of the return of Christ, and he said that Jesus will, with his heavenly armies, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and the birds of the air will gorge themselves on the flesh of those who have been slaughtered. Gross. But that's the bloody picture that, that, that James is painting both to remind poor Christians of the great reversal that is coming and to frighten rich non-Christians into repentance and faith in Jesus. 
which miraculously turns selfish hoarders into generous givers. So, as it turns out, 1 Timothy 6 is not a loophole. It's exactly what we need to hear if we have more than we need. We don't have to debate whether or not we're rich. It doesn't matter. Just don't be arrogant, Paul said to Timothy. Don't be arrogant or put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I would say especially the enjoyment that comes from giving. So Paul says, do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up for yourself as a firm, uh, you will lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. And if you are not yet a Christian and you are not offended by Jesus' demand to be Lord of your assets, but instead you are attracted to the forgiveness and the freedom that he offers to all who have been imprisoned by greed, his word to you today is, follow me.